Hello and welcome to the weekly grind. A bit of a different episode this uh, this week. I uh, don't have an author to sit down with. Rather, I have stories to sit down with. Uh, I want to do a little bit of something different, a little bit of something special uh, for the spooky season for Halloween. Um, so I'm sitting down with my Oktoberfest, and I'm sitting down with a few of my favorite scary stories. Um, from one of my favorite authors, Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, I talk about him quite a lot on this show, uh, but I feel like it's, it's only appropriate for him to actually make an appearance now. Uh, so I got three stories for us. I'm going to go through the Telltale Heart, which everyone will remember from their 11th grade English class. Uh, I'm pretty sure everybody's read this. But then um, we're going to get into Berenice, which is a little bit different. It's not as well known as like the Telltale Heart uh, or the Cask of Amontillado. Um, And after that, uh, I'm going to kind of cap things off with The Raven, which is not only one of my favorite stories, poems of all time probably one of my favorite stories of all time uh edgar Allan poe really just fantastic fantastic uh writer um and even you know what is it now almost 200 years later 180 give or take a few um it still it still hits you it still is able to like tug on those emotional strings um and that's really something special so that's really something i wanted to just kind of do this week. I'm probably going to do uh, a different author's uh, next week. Trying to trying to stay within uh, the realms of eminent domain here, um, and uh, not get myself sued. So I'm I'm pretty comfortable sticking with uh, authors who have perished <laughs> and uh, aren't going to sue me. So we're gonna we're gonna hop right into it with a telltale heart. I have my spooky music. Let's get into it. True. Nervous. Very, very dreadfully nervous. I had been and am, but why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses. Not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken and observe how healthily, how calmly I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object there was none, passion there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture. A pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now this is the point. You fancy me mad. Mad men know nothing. But you should have seen. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded. With what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. 
and every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it, oh so gently. And then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed, so that no light shone out. Then I thrust my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening, so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. Would a madman have been so wise as this? And then, when my head was well within the room, I undid the lantern cautiously. Oh, so cautiously. Cautiously, for the hinges creaked, I undid it just so much that the single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And this I did for seven long nights. Every night, just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed. And so it was impossible to do the work, for it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously by, to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone and inquiring how he has passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man indeed to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. The watch's minute hand moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers, of my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph. To think that there I was, opening the door little by little, and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or my thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly as if startled. Now you may think that I drew back, but no. His room was as black as pitch with the thick darkness, for the shutters were close fastened through fear of robbers, and so I knew he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing it on steadily, steadily. I had my head in and was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening, and the old man sprang up in bed crying out, Who's there? I kept quite still and said nothing. For a whole hour I did not move a muscle, and in the meantime I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed listening, just as I have done, night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was a groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief, oh no, it was the low stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it has welled up from my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo, the terror that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt and pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise when he had turned in the bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them costless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, 
It is nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor, or it is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions, but he had found all in vain. All in vain because death, in approaching him, had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he neither saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. And when I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at least a simple dim ray, like the thread of a spider, shot from out the crevice and fell full upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with the perfect distinctness, all a dull blue with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. But I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray as if by instinct precisely upon the damned spot. But I have not told you. What you mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of the sense. Now I say, there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier to courage. But even yet I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could main maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder. Every instant, the old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say, louder every moment. Do you mark me well that I have told you that I am nervous? So I am. And now, at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet for some minute longer I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart must burst, and now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's howler had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leapt into the room. He shrieked once, once only. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. Then I smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes, the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there for many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead.
his eye would trouble me no more. If still you think me mad, you will no longer, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned, and I worked hastily, but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the board so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot, whatever. I had been too wary for that. A tub had caught all. <laughs> when I had made an end for these labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart, for what had I now to fear? There entered three men who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers of police. A shriek had been heard by the neighbor during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been aroused, information had been lodged with the police officers, and they, the officers, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled. But what had I to fear? I bade the gentlemen welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man I mentioned was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure and undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from, the, from their fatigues, while I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But ere long, I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears. But still they sat and still chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definiteness until at length I found what that noise was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently, with a heightened voice, yet the sound increased, and what could I do? It was low, dull, quick sound, much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles in a high key with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides as if excited to fury by the observations of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh God, what could I do? 
I foamed, I raved, I swore, I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting, and grated it upon the boards, but the noise arose all over and continually increased. It grew louder, 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 and still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard at night? Almighty God, no, no, they heard, they suspected, they knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This, I thought, and this, I think, but anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die, and now again hark louder, 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 louder. Demons, I shrieked. Dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here, here, it is the beating of his hideous heart. That escalated quickly. One of the really cool things about um, Edgar Allan Poe is that he was really a, a short story writer. And much of his stories um, capture a moment. It's, it's, a very, it's like just the climax of um, the story that he, that he captures. Uh, there's, there's usually like a little bit of background, tells you who the character is, and then they just jump right into what's going on and even in this one you know what happens it's not it's not the plot that that gives it suspense it's the repetition it's the way he puts the words together the louder the louder oh god what could i do i foamed i raved i swore that pattern that he that that flow that he puts into his prose that's it's almost poetic um, and that is really, really present in, in, in like, The Raven, which I'm, everybody knows. Um, but it's part of the reason why he was so effective. Um, but what we're going to go to next, after the Telltale Heart, is uh, another short story, uh, Berenice. This is um, similar in tone, but uh, a little bit different. Um, the, the main character is decidedly different from the main character in the Telltale Heart. It's closer to uh, Jekyll and Hyde, really. Um, but I'll, I'll just get into it and I kind of let you, uh, you form your own opinions on it. Um, I, this is not one of the like, most famous Edgar Allan Poe stories. It's, it's pretty well known. Um, but I didn't really, I hadn't actually read it before I sat down to, uh, to put this together. Uh, and I really enjoyed it, so I hope you will, too. So, uh, yeah, I'm just going to hop into it. Misery is manifold. The wretchedness of Earth is multiform. Overreaching the wide horizon as the rainbow, its hues are as various as the hues of that arch. As distinct too, it is intimately blended, overreaching the wide horizon as the rainbow. How is it that far? How is it that from beauty I have derived a type of unloveliness? From the covenant of peace, a simile of sorrow. But as in ethics, evil is a consequence of good. So, in fact, out of joy is sorrow born. Either the memory of past bliss is the anguish of today, 
or the agonies which have their origin in the ecstasies which might have been. My baptismal name is Egeus, that of my family I will not mention, yet there are no towers in the land more time-honored than my gloomy, gray, hereditary halls. Our line has been called a race of visionaries, and in many striking particulars, in the character of the family mansion, in the frescoes of the chief saloon, in the tapestries of the dormitories, in the chiseling of some buttresses in the armory, but more especially in the gallery of antique paintings, in the fashion of the library chamber, and lastly, in the very peculiar nature of the library's contents. There is more than sufficient evidence to warrant the belief. The recollections of my earliest years are connected with that chamber, and with its volumes, of which latter I will say no more. Here died my mother, herein I was born. But it is mere idleness to say that I had not lived before, that the soul has no previous existence. You deny it? Let us not argue. Convince myself I seek not to convince. There is, however, a remembrance of aerial forms, of spiritual and meaning eyes of sounds musical yet sad a remembrance which will not be excluded a memory like a shadow vague variable indefinite unsteady and like a shadow too in the impossibility of getting rid of it while the sunlight of my reason shall exist in that chamber i was born thus awaking from the long night of what seemed but was not non-entity at once into the very regions of fairyland, into a place of imagination, into the wild dominions of monastic thought and erudition. It is not singular that I gazed around me with a startled and ardent eye, that I loitered away from my boyhood in books and dissipated my youth in reverie, but it is singular that as years rolled away, and the noon of manhood found me still in the mansion of my fathers, it is wonderful what stagnation there fell upon the springs of my life. Wonderful how total an inversion took place in the character of my commonest thought. The realities of the world affected me as visions, and as visions only, while the wild ideas of the land of dreams became in turn not the material of my everyday existence, but in very deed that existence utterly and solely in itself. Berenice and I were cousins, and we grew up together in my, my paternal halls. Yet differently we grew. I, ill of health and buried in gloom, she, agile, graceful, and overflowing with energy, hers the ramble on the hillside, mine the studies of the cloister. I, living within my own heart and addicted body and soul to the most intense and painful meditation, she, roaming carelessly through life, with no thought of the shadows of in her path or the silent flight of the raven-winged hours, Berenice! I call upon her name, Berenice, and from the gray ruins of a memory of a thousand tumultuous recollections are startled at the sound. Ah, vividly is her image before me now, as in the early days of the light-heartedness and joy. Oh, gorgeous yet fantastic beauty, oh, sylph, amid the shrubberies of Arnheim, oh, naiad among its fountains, and then, then all is mystery and terror and a tale which should not be told. Disease, a fatal disease, fell like the sumum upon her frame, and even while I gazed upon her, the spirit of change swept over her, 
pervading her mind, her habits, and her character, and in a manner the most subtle and terrible, disturbing even, the identity of her person. Alas, the destroyer came and went, and the victim, where was she? I knew her not, or knew her no longer as Berenice. And the numerous train of maladies superinduced by that fatal and primary one which affected a revolution of so horrible a kind in the moral and physical being of my cousin may be mentioned as the most distressing and obstinate in its nature, a species of epilepsy, not unfrequently terminating in trance itself. Trance very nearly resembled positive dissolution and from which her manner of recovery was, in most instances, startlingly, starting, startlingly abrupt. <laughs> in the meantime, my own disease, for I have been told that I should call it by no other appellation, my own disease, then, grew rapidly upon me, and assumed finally a monomaniac character of a novel and extraordinary form. Hourly and momently gaining vigor, and at length obtaining over me the most incomprehensible ascendancy. This monomania, if I must so term it, consisted in a morbid irritability of those properties of the mind in metaphysical science termed the attentive. It is more than probable that I am not understood, but I fear indeed that it is no matter possible to convey to the mind of the merely general reader an adequate idea of the nervous intensity of interest with which, in my case, the powers of meditation, not to speak technically, busied and buried themselves in the contemplation of even the most ordinary objects of the universe. To muse for long, unwearied hours with my attention riveted to some frivolous device on the margin or in the topography of a book, to become absorbed for the better part of a summer's day in a quaint shadow falling aslant upon the tapestry or upon the door, to lose myself for an entire night in watching the steady flame of a lamp or the embers of a fire, to dream away whole days over the perfume of a flower, to repeat monotonously some common word, until the sound, by dint of frequent repetition, ceased to convey any idea whatever to the mind, to lose all sense of motion or physical existence by means of absolute bodily quiescence, long and obstinately persevered in. Such were a few of the most common and least pernicious vagaries induced by a condition of the mental faculties, not indeed altogether unparalleled, but certainly bidding defiance to anything like analysis or explanation. Yet let me not be misapprehended. The undue earnest and morbid attention thus excited by objects in their own nature frivolous must not be confounded in character with that ruminating propensity common to all mankind, and more especially indulged in by the persons of ardent imagination. It was not even, as might be at first supposed, an extreme condition or exaggeration of such propensity, but primarily and essentially distinct and different. In the one instance, the dreamer or enthusiast being interested by an object, usually not frivolous, imperceptibly loses sight of this object, in a wilderness of deductions and suggestions issuing therefrom, until at conclusion of a day, 
dream, often replete with luxury, he finds the incitamentum of first cause of his musings entirely vanished and forgotten. In my case, the primary object was invariably frivolous, although assuming through the medium of my distempered vision a refracted and unreal importance. Few deductions, if any, were made, and those pertinaciously returning it upon the original object as a center. The meditations were never pleasurable. And, at the termination of the reverie, the first cause, so far from being out of sight, had attained that supernaturally exaggerated interest which was the prevailing feature of the disease. In a word, the powers of mind more particularly exercised were, with me, as I have said before, the attentive, and are, with the daydreamer, the speculative. My books at this epoch, if they did not actually serve to irritate the disorder, partook. It will be perceived largely in their imaginative and inconsequential nature of the charismatic qualities of the disorder itself. I well remember, among the others, the treaties of the nobly Italian Calis Secundus Curio, the Amplitude Bete Regna Dei, St. Austin's great work, The City of God, and Tertullian de Carne Christi, in which the paradoxical sentence Mortuus is Dei Filius Credible Esquia ineptum est, et sepultus resurrectis, certum esquia impossibile est, occupied my undivided time for many weeks of laborious and fruitless investigation. Thus, it will appear that, shaken from its balance only by trivial things, my reason bore resemblance to that ocean crag spoken of by Ptolemy Hephaestion, which, steadily resisting the attacks of human violence and the fiercer fury of the waters of the wilds, trembled only to the touch of the flower called asphodel. And although to a careless thinker it might appear a matter beyond doubt that the alteration produced by her unhappy malady in the moral condition of Berenice would afford me many objects for the exercise of that intense and abnormal meditation whose nature I have been at some trouble in explaining, yet such was not in any degree the case. In the lucid intervals of my infirmity, her calamity indeed gave me pain, and taking deeply to heart that total wreck of her faring gentle life, I did not fall to ponder frequently and bitterly upon the wonder-working means by which so strange a revolution had been so suddenly brought to pass. But these were reflections partook not of the idiosyncrasy of my disease, but were such as would have occurred under similar circumstances to the ordinary mass of mankind. True to its character, my disorder revelled in the less important but more startling changes wrought in the physical frame of in the singular and most appalling distortion of her personal identity. During the brightest days of her unparalleled beauty, most surely I had never loved her. In the strange anomaly of my existence, feelings with me had never been of the heart, and my passions were always of the mind. Through the gray of the early morning, among the trellis shadows of the forest at noonday, and in the silence of my library at night, she had flitted by my eyes, and I had seen her not as the living and breathing Berenice, but as the Berenice of a dream, 
not as a being of the earth, earthy, but as to abstraction of such, a being not as a thing to admire, but to analyze, not as an object of love, but as the theme of the most abstruse, although desultory, speculation. And now, now I shuddered in her presence, and grew pale at her approach. Yet bitterly lamenting her fallen and desolate condition, I called to mind that she had loved me long, and in an evil moment I spoke to her of marriage. And at length the period of our nuptials was approaching, when, upon an afternoon in the winter year, one of the, those unseasonably warm, calm, and misty days, which are the nurse of the beautiful Halcyon, I sat, and sat, as I thought, alone, in the inner apartment of the library. But, uplifting my eyes, I saw that Berenice stood before me. For as Jove, during the winter season, gives twice seven days of warmth, Men have called this clement and temperate time the nurse of the beautiful, Halcyon, Simonides. Was it my own excited imagination, or the misty influence of the atmosphere, or this uncertain twilight of the chamber, or the gray draperies which fell around her figure that caused in it so vacillating and indistinct an outline? I could not tell. She spoke no word. I not for worlds could I have uttered a syllable. An icy chill ran through my frame. A sense of insufferable anxiety oppressed me. A consuming curiosity pervaded my soul, and sinking back upon the chair, I remained for some time breathless and motionless, with my eyes riveted upon her person. Alas, its emaciation was excessive and not one vestige of the former being lurked in any single line of the contour. My burning glances at length fell upon the face. The forehead was high and very pale and singularly placid, and the once jetty hair fell partially over it and overshadowed the hollow temples with which innumerable ringlets now of a vivid yellow and jarring discordantly in their fantastic character with the reigning melancholy of the countenance. The eyes were lifeless and lusterless and seemingly pupilless, and I shrank involuntarily from their glassy stare to the contemplation of the thin and shrunken lips. They parted, and in a smile of peculiar meeting, the teeth of the changed Berenice disclosed themselves slowly to my view. Would to God that I had never beheld them or that, having done so, I had died. The shutting of the door disturbed me, and looking up I found that my cousin had departed from the chamber, but the disordered chamber of my brain had not, alas, departed, and would not be driven away. The white and ghastly spectrum of the teeth, not a speck on their surface, not a shade on their enamel, not an indenture in their edges, but what that period of her smile had sufficed to brand upon my memory. I saw them now even more unequivocally than I beheld them then. The teeth, the teeth! They were here and there and everywhere and visibly and palpably before me, long, narrow, and excessively white with the pale lips writhing about them as in the very moment of their first terrible development. Then came the full fury of my monomania. 
and I struggled in vain against strange and irresistible influence. In the multiplied objects of the external world, I had no thoughts but for the teeth. For these I longed with a frenzied desire. All other matters and all different interests became absorbed in their single contemplation. They, they alone, were present to the mental eye, and they, in their sole individuality, became the essence of my mental life. I held them in every light. I turned them in every attitude. I surveyed their characteristics. I dwelt upon the, their peculiarities. I pondered upon their confirmation. I mused upon the alteration in their nature. I shuddered as I assigned to them in imagination a sensitive and sentient power, and even when unassisted by the lips, a capability of moral expression of Mancel Sal, it has been said, well said, que tu sais pas, Etienne de sentiments, and of Berenice, I more seriously believe que tu sais dense, Etienne des indies, des indies, Ah, here was the idiotic thought that destroyed me, Desides. Ah, therefore it was that I coveted them so madly. I felt their possession could never alone restore me to peace in giving me back to reason. And the evening closed in upon me thus. And the darkness came, and tarried, and went. And the day again dawned, and in the mists of a second night were now gathering around, and still I sat motionless in that solitary room, and still I buried in meditation, and still the phantasma of the teeth maintained its terrible ascendancy as, with the most vivid hideous distinctness, it floated about amid the changing lights and shadows of the chamber. At length it broke in my in upon my dreams a cry as of horror and dismay, and thereunto, after a pause, succeeded the sound of troubled voices, intermingled with many low moanings of sorrow or of pain. I arose from my seat, and throwing open one of the doors of the library, saw standing in the antechamber a servant maiden, all in tears, who told me that Berenice was no more. She had been seized with epilepsy in the early morning, and now, at the closing of the night, the grave was ready for its tenant, and all the preparations for the burial were completed. I found myself sitting in the library, and again sitting there alone. It seemed that I had newly awakened from a confused and exciting dream. I knew that it was now midnight, and I was well aware that since the setting of the sun, Berenice had been interned. But of that dreary period which intervened, I had no positive, at least no definite, comprehension. Yet its memory was replete with horror. Horror more horrible from being vague, and terror more terrible from ambiguity. It was a fearful page in the record of my existence, written all over with dim and hideous and unintelligible recollections, I strive to decipher them, but in vain. While ever and anon, the spirit of a departed sound, the shrill and piercing shriek of a female voice seemed to be ringing in my ears. I had done a deed. What was it? 
I asked myself the question loud, and the whispering echoes of the chamber answered me. What was it? On the table beside me burned a lamp, and near it lay a little box. It was of no remarkable character, and I had seen it frequently before, for it was the property of the family physician. But how did it came it there, upon my table, and why did I shudder in regarding it? These things were in no manner to be accounted for, and my eyes at length dropped to the open pages of a book, and to a sentence underscored therein. The words were the singular, but simple ones of the poet Eben Zayat. Dicebant mihi sadalesi sepulchrum, amice visitarum curas meas, aliquantulum for levatas. Why then, as I perused them, did the hairs of my head erect themselves on end, and the blood of my body become congealed within my veins? There came a light tap at the library door, and pale as the tenant of the tomb, a menial entered upon tiptoe. His looks were wild with terror, and he spoke to me in a tremulous, husky, and very low. What said he? Some broken sentences I heard? He told of a wild cry disturbing the silence of the night, of the gathering together of the household, of a search in the direction of the sound, and then his tones grew thrillingly distinct as he whispered me of a violated grave, of a disfigured body enshrouded, yet still breathing, still palpitating, still alive. He pointed to garments, and they were muddy and clotted with gore. And I spoke not, and he took me gently by the hand. It was indented by the impress of human nails. He directed my attention to some object against the wall. I looked at it for some minutes. It was a spade. With a shriek, I bounded to the table and grasped the box that lay upon it, but I could not force it open, and in my tremor it slipped from my hands and fell heavily and burst into pieces, and from it, with a rattling sound, there rolled out some instruments of dental surgery intermingled with thirty-two small white and ivory-looking substances that were scattered to and fro about the floor. And that is uh, the end of Berenice. That is genuinely terrifying. I think one of the things that really makes uh, Edgar Allan Poe so scary is that, and not even scary, it's not traditional horror, but it's very creepy, because the main character can never be trusted. There's always this, um, this feeling of psychological instability, usually around the narrator, which is interesting because the narrator often gets associated with the author um and it's it's the type of thing that appears so often in edgar Allan poe's work that it's um it, it seems like maybe that association isn't necessarily wrong maybe edgar Allan poe was trying to explore something maybe there was something in his own scarred psyche that he was able to express through his stories. Maybe he just thought they sounded cool. They do sound very cool. Um, but speaking of sounding very cool, we have one last poem to go through. 
uh, one of my favorite poems um, <clears throat> from everybody's everybody's favorite emo poem from everybody's favorite emo author, uh, The Raven, which we will hop into in just a second. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered, weak and weary, over many quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as if someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. "'Tis some visitor,' I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. Only this, nothing more. Ah, distinctly, I remember, it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow, vainly I had sought to borrow, from my books surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore. For the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels named Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door." Some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, this it is, and nothing more. Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer, "'Sir,' said I, or madam, truly, your forgiveness I implore. But the fact is I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door. Darkness, though, and nothing more. Deep into that darkness peering, long I stood there, wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token. And the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore. This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore. Merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber turning with all my soul within me burning, soon again I heard a tapping somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice. Let me see then what the radis and this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter, when, with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with mien of lord or lady perched above my chamber door, perched upon a post of palace just above my chamber door, perched and sat, and nothing more. Then the ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling, by the grave and stern decorum from the countenance it bore. Though thy crest be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no craven, ghastly grim and ancient raven wandering from the nightly shore, Tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's plutonian shore, quoth the raven, nevermore. 
Much I marveled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly. Though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore, for we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door with such a name as Nevermore. But the bird sitting lonely on the placid bus spoke only that one word as if in his soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing farther than he uttered till I scarcely more than muttered. Other friends have flown before. On the morrow he will leave me as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said nevermore. Startled at the stillness broken, by reply so aptly spoken, doubtless, said I, what it stutters, is only stock and store, caught from some unhappy master who from unmerciful disaster followed fast and followed faster, till his songs one burden bore, till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore of never, never more. But the raven, still beguiling all my fancy into smiling, Straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door. Then, upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking, fancy unto fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore meant in croaking, nevermore. This I sat engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl, whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease reclining, on the cushion's velvet lining and the lamp-like loaded oar, but whose velvet violet lining with the lamp-like loading oar she shall press, ah, nevermore. Then, methought, the air grew denser, Perfumed from an unseen censer, swung by seraphim, whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, that God hath lent thee, by these angels he hath sent thee, respite, respite and nepenthe from the memories of Lenore. Quaff, O oh, quaff this kind nepenthe, and forgot this lost Lenore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, Thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, whether tempter sent or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore, desolate yet all undaunted, and this desert land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted, tell me truly, I implore, is there is there a balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by the God we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels named Lenore. Clasp a rare and radiant maiden whom the angels named Lenore? Quoth the raven, nevermore. 
be that sign our word of parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked up starting. Get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul hath spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting, on the pallid bust of Pallas, just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of the demons that is dreaming. And the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. And that is the end of our night and our show. That was three uh, very good stories. The, the stories that I like a lot, that I like sharing, um, that I like reading for from Edgar Allan Poe. Um everybody's favorite emo emo author <laughs> i can't it's 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 there's not much to uh to describe him besides that he's he's really like he's very intense emotionally um and i feel like some of this doesn't translate uh in in this day and age where everyone is very cynical this type of stuff is looked at like you know kind of emo goth type it's, it's 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 laughed at like a little bit I feel by by kind of the mainstream and um, I think that we shouldn't let our cynicism uh, rob us of the power that these words can hold um, but what did what do you think of the stories which one which one here was your favorite uh, whether it was the raven or Berenice or the telltale heart these are uh, classic stories classic spooky stories um and there will probably be like a poll up on twitter uh some point about which which one anyone wants to hear next week and we'll have a list of different authors and we'll probably do this again all the way up to halloween um so until then until next week i hope you can sleep i co hope you can't hear the beating